Check one, two. Go! Curious about real estate? Yes! Then you've come to the right place. Get the knowledge you need. Get over the fear and get started. This is the Michael Quarles Real Estate Show with your host, Michael Quarles. Hello, everybody. Michael Quarles with the Michael Quarles Real Estate Show. Today, I have Harry Paul on the show. And normally, I would I would introduce you guys to the my guest and brag about him and tell you all the good things about him and, and all that kind of good stuff, which I enjoy doing, and it's always truthful. But I'm going to let Harry tell you guys about him. Uh, is this man just fascinating? Here we go. Harry, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm... Uh... What I'd like to say is uh, somewhere in, in the senior uh, citizen age range, uh, which means that I have a Ph.D. in experience and I've been in the people business uh, for the last 30 years, helping people be the best that they can be. And then in turn, helping their companies uh, be the best that they can be and in turn being a good person and being a good family person, because I, I think as an author and a speaker, if I espouse one set of values to an audience and live a different set of values at home or in my personal life, I'm hypocritical. So I do my best efforts to always live in both personally and professionally with the same set of values. And it has served me well over the years because I sleep well at night, Michael. That's important. So you actually, you're, you don't camouflage who you are during the day. You are who you are in the day, and at night you're the same person. Absolutely. And, in fact, with my first book, Fish, which is all about enjoying what you do, coming to work with a great attitude, uh, making people's day, being present, we use that same philosophy in raising uh, both our children, my wife and I. So, yeah, I live and breathe this stuff every single day, and it's one of my uh, great pleasures in life is to go around the world sharing this message with people. And I, I always say people. Yes, the organizations hire me and, and, and compensate me for it, but it's the people I'm interested in. I don't see corporate people in the audience. I see individuals who I try to inspire to give and be their best every day to wake up at work and say, I get to go to work, not have to go to work. I've always felt bad for Monday because it's the day that most people leave us. And I feel bad for the people on Monday because I enjoy my day. People ask me all the time, when do you, you know, what do you do for a job? I, well, I don't have one. I go on vacation every time I go to my office. And sometimes I stay home and I'm on, on vacation. I don't look at work like I guess most people look at work. I, I, I hope for whoever's listening, if you can experience what it feels like not to have a job or think that you have a job, I think that that would be a great thing. I agree, and I know there's a, I forget who said it, probably dozens of people take credit for it or have taken credit for it. If you love what you do and have fun doing it, you'll never work a day in your life, and I believe in that philosophy. We should wake up Monday morning and say, wow, it's going to be a great week. You know, look at the industry, the real estate industry. I always tell people, what is it you really do? Look at the product behind the product. You're helping people create the American dream. Does it get any better than that? Not for me. I mean, no. 
and you know, one of the nice things that I've, as I turn more into that AARP lifestyle, for those that may not know what AARP, um, you're lucky. <laughs> yes. I got the mailings. <laughs> well, how do you start getting that at 50? I started getting that, I thought before I was there, but I started like, they started like pre-marketing to me and I'm, I'm I was like almost worried for myself. Yeah. I, I got it since I was probably 45 and now at 65, I still get it. And, uh, I still, what, what did, uh, I forget who it was, Groucho Marx said, I wouldn't join a, a club who would have me as a member. Yeah. I really don't want to be in that club and I'm, I'm hoping we could just push the, the time frame out a little bit. I can't wait for us to live longer. You know what, Michael? Set your goals. Uh, when I turn 50, everyone goes, Oh my God, it's 50. Your life's over. And I said, you know, I'm not worried about 50. But when I'm 60, I want to look like I'm 50. And I believe in that. I work out five days a week and I try to I don't want to say cheat aging. I want to enjoy every step of the way. And I got a lot of life ahead of me and I want to be in good health and good form to, to enjoy it. And I think we have an obligation uh, to the future generations to do that and not be wards of the medical state. But that's too political. Oh, no, no, that's not. <laughs> and that's actually a very personal statement because we have more than that, you know, to worry about. I mean, there are people that we've asked to be part of our life forever, and we have to make forever as long as possible. It, it, it's true. I, I want to, you know, there's a lot of things yet to do, a lot of things yet to see it. You know, a 28-year-old daughter and a 26-year-old son, I'd, yeah, I'd like to see them get married. I'd like to have grandkids at some point. Uh, maybe at my age, I'll never see great-grandkids, but that's okay. Grandkids would be, you know, no, that, that could be uh, a goal. Now that could be a goal. You know, absolutely. I travel the world, see all the places I haven't seen yet. There's a lot of things to do. Maybe, God forbid, volunteer somewhere. Have you picked out a um a nickname as grandfather? Like a like what you want your grandkids to call you? <laughs> yes, sir. You want to share? <laughs> No, I said sir. Oh, sir. Okay. <laughs> well, no, there you go. There you go. I, I haven't gone that far yet. I remember when I was growing up, uh, what I called my grandfather and what my kids called my father, and it was a Yiddish word called Zayda. And it's a neat word, but for me, it's a little too old. And I want to be that grandfather that the kids have fun with and enjoy and can go out and have a, you know, throw the baseball around or, or, I won't go snowboarding, but maybe go out and race cars or something like that. Yeah. I have a friend of mine that is so looking forward to his grandkids being at the age, I think, of being able to participate because he's a superhuman. So I think he has plans of making them into superhumans as well by doing all this uh, stuff. I mean, he's just one of those incredible just incredible people from both a personality perspective and a physical perspective. If I were his, in fact, maybe he can adopt me. Glenn, if you're listening, <laughs> I'll, I'll sign the adoption papers and you can just adopt me as a grandchild. But, um, well, I, I agree with that, but to a certain extent, because 
you want the kids to live their dreams, not yours. My son played baseball all the way through high school, and you know, we thought he'd play in college and did get offers, and he decided he wanted a life and in college instead of just you know constantly practicing and playing baseball. And I said, well, it's your dream. I said, you're breaking my heart. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we, we just spent a small fortune on, on this baseball journey, but it's your life and I have to support it. And it, it was easy to get over. It took a little while, uh, but once we did, it was fine. And interestingly, I only, always ask my son after I pick him up from a game or practice. This was every day. For over 10 years, he practiced and played baseball. I said, did you have fun, David? He goes, yeah. I said, good. We'll come back tomorrow. Yeah. You know, the whole concept for me, as you talked about practice in baseball or practice in life or practice at doing anything great, I'm, I'm so amazed that we have really supreme athletes. We'll just, we'll take Steph Curry, who's a really good basketball player currently. I imagine that man has played basketball from the time he could put that basketball between his legs and dribble it. And every day he goes and practices. And every day he has a coach or every day he's had a coach from, you know, junior high to high school to college and now professionally. I'm amazed that society doesn't see that same need for themselves, that every day they need a coach, even when you're the best at what you do. You still need a coach. And, and if I could harp on one concept in life, I'd harp on that one. Because I can look at my personal life and say, when I had one, I excelled. When I didn't have one, I didn't achieve. It's absolutely true. And, and when you look at you know an athlete at the top of their game, I think it's important. We get caught up in their skill. But there's more beyond skill in that quest that they have for excellence. Because there's a lot of people out there that could have certain uh, skills, but they're average. And you have to have passion for what you do. And if you look at a, a, a Curry, he has passion, competence. The guy practices, tries, and does, and gives his best. He also has that flexibility to learn, to take in feedback from the coaches, from the trainers. He also... It's a great communicator because he has to, he can't excel without a good team around him. There's too many athletes we've seen out there that never get to that level because they're not playing as part of the team. And also, he takes responsibility for who he is, how he lives his lifestyle, and how he comes and approaches the game every day. That's when you start moving towards excellence and being excellent. I don't know if we could ever beat that excellent, but moving towards it because I've always felt if you're not moving towards excellence, you're moving towards average. I don't think there's any in between. I put that in one of my books called Who Kidnapped Excellence? And the, and the answer is, who kidnapped excellence? Average has kidnapped excellence. And we always deny it. We always say we're being our best. And then pretty soon, we start accepting average as our excellence and bad things happen. But it, 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 I think it's a whole... There's something more than just the competence that allows these people to excel. Um, I once spent a couple of weeks with Don Shula, former coach of the Miami Dolphins, and he was doing a book tour with some, uh, my former boss, Ken Blanchard. And 
I asked him the question. I said, how do you find the right players? How do you put a perfect season together? How do you be the winningest coach? You know, how do you keep that level of talent? He goes, I always look for heart first. He says, then I can teach him how to play my brand of football. Right, right. And there has to be a sense of willingness and, and not gift. Uh, because I think when we think we're special, then we've already failed. So, and, well, we 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 see we see the police blotters and the uh, and the aftermath of entitlement. Yeah, uh, especially in the athletic world and in the business world as well. Uh, oh. What sets those, those those winners apart from everyone else? So, with that said, tell me about a winning attitude because I, I I know you talk about that a lot. So, what is a winning attitude? I think the winning attitude starts when you get up in the morning. I mean, do you, how many people in your audience look in the mirror and say, today I'm going to be magnificent? Because if you're not, what you are, you're being ordinary. Your mind doesn't know. If you tell, you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I'm going to be magnificent. Hey, guess what? You will be. You're already thinking that way. It's the same thing what I said earlier. Get to go to work versus have to go to work. When you get to go to work, that's different. That's a choice. You take that cleansing breath before you cross the threshold at work, and you say, I get to be here. I like what I do. The other part of a winning attitude, and I touched on it briefly before, is product behind the product. What do you really do? It's very easy to say, I sell real estate. I sell insurance. I sell finance. You know, I, I, I work in a bank. What is, what's the product behind that product? Here, take it down to the lowest common denominator. Dishwasher. I wash dishes. That's a terrible job. Oh, you can say it, look at it that way. What about you provide a safe, clean, germ-free environment from which to consume food? That sounds pretty darn important at that point. You have to look at what you do and understand that product behind the product. An American dream. Two years ago, my wife and I decided two and a half years ago, we decided to downsize. Sell the house where we raised the kids in the suburb, move into the city in a really old 1910 neighborhood, buy a house with great bones and fix it up. That was our, this is, I shouldn't say that was, this is our retirement dream. And we wanted a realtor who kind of shared that dream with us that understood our needs, what we were looking for, what kind of lifestyle we were choosing to show us the right property, the right, the things that would work with us, what we were really after that product behind the product. We were looking for something my wife and I can do together and thrive with. That is more important than selling somebody a house. I hope I articulated that well. That is much more important. I think so. And I, I'm, I have a question. I'm thinking about the dishwasher for a second. And I, I, I think we can all value what we do. But at the same time, I think we cannot value what we do and still value what we do. So what do you do for the person who says, I'm a dishwasher. I'm great at it. I love it. But I want to be the waiter or the waitress. How do you, how do you stay where you're at? Enjoy what you're doing. Want to go, you know, to what you do but want to get out of what you do at the same time. Well, I, I think it goes back to those five points I, I was talking about earlier. You, you know, passion for what you're doing. Yeah, great. Competency, flexibility. But look at those three things. Let's look at competency, flexibility, and communication. How do you communicate to, to management that you want to move, you want to grow, you want to do something else? 
what are you learning? What skills are you developing to be a, a server? And the flexibility to say, hey, I can do this and learn at the same time. Give you a good example. My son graduated UNLD. He has a degree in gaming management. That's basically casino management. That's what his degree is. While he was at school at UNLV in Las Vegas, he got a job dealing blackjack because it's a great job, pays well, flexible hours. It works well with the school schedule, and it's in this industry he wants to be in. While he was there, he was always fascinated by what was going on at the craft table, which is a very complex game to learn to play, let alone to deal. On his breaks, he stood in the, the crap pit at, at where he worked, watched what was going on to the point where he said to the, to the big boss or the table manager, the uh, box man there, I want to try. And they gave him a shot. Before long, he was dealing craps. He took the initiative to go from, I don't want to say dishwasher to waiter, but from blackjack dealer to craps dealer. By taking those initiatives and, you know, right back to the five pillars of excellence, every one of them was there. And I think that's what we have to do. Look at where we want to go, have that vision, which is great, and clarity of vision. Then the mission is, what are you going to do to get there? That's where people fall down. I want to be this, but I want it given to me. I don't want to work for it. Yeah, there's, so, there's so many society blamers out there that they're where they're at because it's someone else put them there. It's like, really? I don't, I, I don't believe that for a moment. I think we arrive where we choose to arrive, um, either because of uh, effort or lack of effort. I, I agree with you. I, I, you know how, Michael, you remember things from childhood that kind of, you know, somebody said something to you and it made you think or do things differently. I remember when I was about, I want to say, 13 years old, I went to overnight camp, and I, I came from South Philadelphia, and we were kind of a, that's kind of a boisterous, tough neighborhood, and it was a great place to grow up, but you know, we, we never listened to anybody, we did whatever we want, uh, school wasn't important, and I remember being at overnight camp, and the last night, before you go home, the counselor comes and says, oh, you know, goes to each student in the bunk you know, what they liked about him and appreciating him as a student, uh, as a, a camper. And the guy came up to me and said, you keep on doing this, you'll never amount to anything. You, 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 in fact, you won't amount to anything. And I remember listening to that say, yeah, you just watch me. Yep. I had that same conversation, but maybe I was more of a rebel in that I remember being reported to the counselor's office. Now, this happened quite frequently in my high school years. However, this one occasion, and my counselor was at this point kind of tired of, of engaging with me. And so, and so I, being a, a rebel, I asked him, I said, Pat, and I said, how much do you make? And I think I was a sophomore in high school because I was just being a rebel. And he says, well, I make, and I'm, let's say 50,000. And this was a long time ago, so it probably wasn't 50,000. Anyway, he said 50,000. And I said, Really? You went to college for that? You you went you, you spent your entire life now to make fifty? Seriously? And you want me to go to class? But that conversation I had, although I was being like a little silly, I really used him as a benchmark. Going, wait a second, I don't want to end up where he's at. 
And not that I was ever thinking about being a counselor, but I don't want to, I don't want to end up in, in a mundane job and a job that just didn't reward me for my talent or what I perceived to be my talent. And, and so I, I was a pivotal conversation at a, a young age for me. Uh, probably not a nice conversation, but it was still important to me to have. So yeah, I, I love the challenges that, that people give folks when they say they, this is all they'll be. Yeah, if you tell me I can't, that'll make me work that much harder to show you that I can. Right. And I think society in itself nowadays may be telling people they can't, and which would make you work much harder to show that you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what sets people apart, the ones that are really doing well and the ones that are struggling. It's that stick to that that drive, that determination. They have that clarity of vision, and they're going to get there no matter what. Right. And no matter what doesn't mean doing anything nefarious. Uh, I think we have to. Right. There's no shortcuts in life that 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 uh, work in the long term. Do you remember Red Rover? Red Rover. It was some kind of Red Rover, Red Rover. Send the guy over, send the, this person over. And it was like, so I, what I remember about it, and I, it was in grammar school, and we picked teams. So on the recess kind of thing, we'd line up as children and go, okay, you're the captain of this team, you're the captain of that team, and you start picking your team. Well, even at a young age, I always wanted to get picked first or second. I never wanted to get picked last. But culturally, I think our culture and our society has changed a little bit. We don't care if we get picked last. And for me, not wanting to get picked last, always wanting to get picked, you know, on the higher end of the, of the chart of being picked, I think really helped. I mean, we did, I didn't get a trophy for last place. I didn't get a ribbon. I only got a ribbon for, or a trophy for first place. And from my perspective, I, I think it worked better than maybe just giving everybody a participation trophy. Uh, yeah, which always drove me crazy, participation trophy. No, you get a trophy for excelling. In youth sports, especially at the beginning levels, uh, oh, we don't keep score. Well, it's a game. What do you mean you don't? Well, no, it, it, it would upset the children. Yeah. So you don't think every kid on that field is keeping score? You don't think every parent is keeping score, the coaches? Yeah. Why do you think they play different kids at different positions? I mean, everyone's keeping score. You're kidding yourself. Everybody's keeping score. I was a, um, gosh, a little league coach, I guess. And although I wasn't a baseball player in, in school, they needed volunteers. So I volunteered as a dad to be a little league coach. And the little league coaches also had to sub to be uh, umpires or whatever they called. And so I, I umpired a t-ball game. I didn't realize there wasn't a straight three strike rule in T-ball. I'm thinking the ball's on the stick, got a bat in your hand, you swing three times, you're out. Exactly. Oh my goodness gracious. And I was adamant as going like strike one. By the time I got to strike three, this kid was crying and the parents were hollering and thinking, but he struck out. What are we teaching? And of course I was the bad person that day because I expected the winner mentality out of life, but. Yeah, you think when you get out out in the real world, you get a participation trophy? You think you're not getting three strikes? Actually, you'll get one strike, and then you're out. You know, a lot of people do get a participation tro- trophy in life, in my opinion. It's called a paycheck. It's because they're, yeah. pr- they're participating. 
And I want more than a paycheck. I hope that people that are listening want more than a paycheck. I hope that they think in their mind every time they get up, how can I improve today? How can I make today better than tomorrow? And how can I make today's tomorrow better than today? And I'm always, I've always been amazed that we set resolutions once a year. Why don't we set them every week? Why don't we set them every day? Because every day we get up, we can choose to be better. We can set a goal for ourselves. And some of us do, some of us don't. And it's when we get to the end of the day every day and we decide, well, we, we can't achieve our goal because we're tired or because it's too late or because I had too many potato chips at lunch or whatever it is. Well, shame on us. Uh, participation, you know, paycheck for participation is a, a good way of looking at it. And you're right. It's not really a barometer. It's what you're doing with your life and how you better yourself and how you take chances and look at opportunities and say, hey, you know, people talk about luck. Well, you know, there is some luck in the world. I do believe that. But more of it is seeing an opportunity and acting on it. Mm-hmm. I've never written a book before I got my first opportunity. Well, that was just and lucky. I've done seven. That's lucky. Yeah, I was, I was lucky. Someone, uh, you know, asked me to be part of a, a, a three-person author team. And, and it was all luck that it, it, you know, has sold over five million copies so far. And, and it was all luck that it continues to sell you know, 100,000 copies a year. That was yeah, nothing to do with it. Good stuff, constant paying attention to it, working for it, all luck. Right. And I, I imagine that some people describe you that way who may not know you. They may know of you a little bit. But a lot of folks, we look at successful people, and that's how we define them so we don't feel so guilty ourselves. Oh, oh, sure. They they look at it like, oh, it was luck. Uh, well, how about all the things I did to create that luck? Well, they can't look at it that because they're not taking the steps to create their own luck. Exactly. You know, I hate to use the word. I won't use the word jealous. I use the word envy, maybe, that, that helps them think that way. Uh, it, it's sad because, you know, I'm in my third career, and it's kind of neat. And I don't know, maybe I'll be in a fourth career one day. This one's too much fun right now to, to, to want to switch, but try new things. I, I, I started out as an artist, went in, into sales, and now I'm, I'm doing people development. It's not bad. No, it's, it's not bad. What, what people change, what, every seven years anyway? So it's like taste buds. So you're fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, talk to the millennials and see, seven years, I can't stay in a job seven years. Yeah. Hey, um, in your book that you wrote about fish, yes. what does FISH stand for? It must stand fish for. Is not an, okay, FISH is not an acronym or, or, or an acrostic. FISH, the reason why the book is called FISH, it's a parable, but it's based on an actual establishment. It's called the Pike, world-famous Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, Washington, at the public market down there. And they are the most successful 1,200 square feet of retail space in America. Wow. Tiny little fish market. And where they are, there are three other fish markets within 150 yards selling the same fish for the same price. Yet this one's world-famous and the most successful. What was setting them apart? And we did a parable based on that, and we were able to uncover their philosophy of how they have 
gone to work every day and the attitudes they choose. And we found out it was four parts. They chose their attitude. They chose magnificent. They chose to make a difference in people's lives. They have fun doing it. Uh, it's almost like street data. They're known for throwing fish uh, across the uh, market there. The third is they're present. They're very present with people and they understand why they go to work every day. And the fourth is they bring the customer into the excitement, into the street theater. They make people's day. Those four parts of that philosophy that we call the fish philosophy, that's what sets them apart. And that's why people have been buying the book and buying the fish video or hiring me to speak. It's creating that kind of uh, customer experience that can't be duplicated by the competition because it's all created by the, the 22 guys working there. Yeah. And you can't watch a, a, a sporting event from Seattle without seeing that market. They'll always show the market. Presidential candidates go to the market. Uh, movies show the market. It's because they're fascinated with the amount of energy they could bring to work every day. And it was one of those things where saw it, was amazed by it, approached them to write it, and they said yes. And as luck would have it, we were able to write a good book, get published, and sell lots of copies because of all that luck. Because of luck, yes. Yeah. Can I put you on the spot? Sure. I know I set you up on that because you can't say no to that question, right? <laughs> I mean, no. let's, let's face it. So, got a good, good, good host on my side. I'm a real estate investor. Give me what I should be doing from that philosophy, from your philosophy of fish. What do I need to do? And I know you may not know anything about real estate investing. I apologize, but paint my, paint my life for me. Okay. Well, if you look at the, the, the four parts of the fish philosophy, you can't downplay any of the four parts. Having a great attitude, you know, we've been beaten into us since we were children. Having fun, it brings energy, passion. Work made fun gets done. Being present, understand why we go to work and making people's day. But if I was to break, if you were to say, Harry, pick one, which you really can't, but if we wanted to rank order them, being there, being present, and it's understanding why you go to work every day. That makes the difference. Why are you a real estate investor? Yeah, to make money. Is it? Is there something deeper? Is there something that's fun about it, enjoyable? Is there something that's kind of neat when you, you take a house or a property and see the smile on their face when, when, when ownership changes? Why do you go to work? It's understanding your vision, your mission, and how you operate within your values. Understanding that, understanding that real presence, that real purpose, that real direction in life, I believe sets you on a path for success, no matter what you're doing. And you have to look at it. Stephen Covey said it best, that in order to be successful, you have to pay attention to all the little details. And, and the phrase he used is, you can't win at tennis by keeping your eye, and I'm paraphrasing, okay. by keeping your eye on the scoreboard. You have to keep your eye on the ball and the scoreboard will follow. Well, it's the same thing in real estate investment. Keeping your eye on the ball, what it takes, that's being present. Where you got to go, what you have to do, and that'll help. Because you said, you said uh, I got to make money, and that's your only barometer. I, I think in the long run, you could fail. Right. 
I do too. I, I often tell my the folks that I get to help that at some point you will have enough money that money won't mean money anymore. And then what do you do? So when you, when you're that successful, when you w- wake up that day and go, wait a second, everything I've done was based upon wanting money. And now I have it while wow, I'm lost because everything was about something I've achieved. If it's not, if it isn't greater than that, then what are you going to do when you achieve it? That was for me an aha moment in my life when I did wake up on that day and say, Oh, this was too easy. How did this happen? What do I do now? How do I, what's my next focus? If money was always my focus and I have achieved it, what do I do after that? And the feeling of loss or at loss was, was pretty great for me anyway. Oh, go, 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 walk through any cemetery. I mean, if you're so inclined to do and find any gravestone that has someone's net worth and grave on it's all about something else in life. And I've had people say, oh, you must be happy. You have money. And I know that people, they look at you and they roll their eyes. Money does not buy happiness. All that money does is make being miserable easier. The divorce rate among people who have lots and lots and lots of money is probably higher than people who don't have a lot of money. Yeah, happiness is not a byproduct of money. As I do know people that don't want to be wealthy, I don't understand it, but I do know them. And they're extremely happy people. They're, they're existing in, in, in their time. And, and I think their days are much longer than my 24 hours. And sometimes I'm envious of their lifestyle that they can absolutely not want to achieve some of the things I want to achieve. Yeah. Less complicated, maybe. Yeah. Uh, less to worry about. I, I, I don't know, but I think there has to be that happy balance right. uh, between the two. And, and you're right. I mean, there's, there's only so much you could spend. It. Uh, what was it in Wall Street? You know, uh, Charlie Sheen said to uh, Michael Douglas, "You know, how many yachts can you uh, can you water ski behind, and airplanes you could own?" Uh, at a certain point, it's it, it, at a certain point, it's pointless. Great. Although, although I'd like to get there. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I, for for everybody listening, I do enjoy having a Bentley. I do enjoy parking my Bentley and big people asking me, "Is that a Bentley?" I do enjoy that, but I don't love my Bentley. I love my wife. Well, what's there not to like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's there not, exactly? Unless you don't have a Bentley, you have something different than a Bentley, then you have to like that. It's an achievement for you. It's something that was, you know, important for you to, to get to that point, and you got there. Yeah. I actually put it on my uh, list of my goals so it's, because I'm a goal-oriented person. So I do goals daily, weekly, monthly, semi-annually uh, and annually, and it was on my annual goal, and I knew the, the month that I was going to get it. And I knew it was the most ridiculous thing I was going to spend money on in my entire lifetime, up to date. I have to qualify that. And yet, it was still there. It was still something I chose to do on purpose. It wasn't lucky. And I think there, exactly. is, a, there is a big difference between being spontaneous, which I think spontaneity is great. I mean, it's a lot of fun. But we also have to be realistic and say, hey, we can have what looks like it was spontaneous, but as long as we plan for it. and But that's just me. <laughs> it's funny. You're right. That spontaneity, it, it looks like it, 
but it's planned. Someone once said, do you plan your speeches, you know, down to the word, or are you extemporaneous? And I said, yes. <laughs> All of the above? All of the above. I mean, when you get behind the wheel of your Bentley, you smile. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you walk across the parking lot and you see it there, do you go, yeah, look at that baby. I, I do. I now have old eyes, so I have to be much closer to it. <laughs> Get white; it stands out more. Yeah. So I, I and people look at me. Are you? What are you looking at? But I, I, I do like my baby Bentley, and I think yeah. everybody should have a goal that may that they may think is beyond them, but it really isn't. I mean, if you if you just set it in place and you just say, "What do I have to do today to achieve that goal that I want in a year?" or in six months, or in a month, and do, like, leave these little baby steps. I saw this program, I'm going to call it, like, on National Geographic TV or something, and they were talking about quicksand, how people get stuck in quicksand and can't get out. And so they showed people, you know, stuck and violently trying to move to get out of quicksand, and they couldn't do it. In fact, they would be getting stuck more. So by the end of the, the show, the program, they actually showed us how to get out of quicksand. It's these little baby motions, just these little baby little motions with a leg. And all of a sudden, you can lift the leg out of quicksand, and then you do the other leg. So it's not the violent, rapid, large motions that how you accomplish getting out of quicksand or how you accomplish life. It's those little ones that add up to the big motion. Exactly. What was that movie? What about Bob? Baby Steps. Yeah. Baby Steps. Yeah, you can't wake up. You know, there's no such thing as an overnight success. Yeah, the, the 12-year overnight rock star. But how yeah. do you how do you manage the fear? I mean, because that's the probably the the component that most people allow to get in their way is I'm just afraid of failure. Boy, good question. Well, failure is a part of life, and if you don't learn from it, uh, then you're doomed to fail a, a, again and again. What's Einstein said? The definition of insanity is right. doing the same thing over and over again, Expect. expecting different results. Yeah. yeah I, before I became, I never did professional speaking. And at 50 years old, when the book came out, you know, we're selling a book a minute. You know, it's very heady for us. It's great seeing your name in, in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, you know, associated with a best-selling book. It was just phenomenal. And then once you had that, they asked you to speak. I never did public speaking before. People fear it more than death. I don't know if I was that bad, but I, I was skipped. The first time I did a, a presentation on my book, Fish, I was so scared I didn't get up. I sat down and did it. And I realized, hey, I got to start doing things. I got to start learning. I and then so I, I tried to look at speakers who I admire and trying to imitate them. Well, that wasn't working either. And someone said, where were you, Harry? I said, what do you mean? I was up there speaking. And she said, that wasn't you. She goes, I think you're funny. I like you. You have a great personality. She goes, that's who you should be up there. And it's like the light bulb in the cartoon when it goes off. Wait a second. You had to be Above yourself? Your head. You had to be yourself? Yeah. Oh, I had no. to be myself. Uh, no. and, and from that moment on, guess what? I enjoyed speaking to the point now where I can't wait to my next presentation. I can't wait till they announce my name and I can get up in front of a group and 
share my message. You're just a big hand. Yeah, definitely. I overcame that fear. It was, you know, was it scary still? Several times. I used to stay up the night all night reading my notes and practicing and getting to the point where I thought I was comfortable. I mean, I have to speak for a half hour. Oh, my God. Do I have that much material? And now, as you can tell, I'm speaking on the the podcast. Yeah, you just won't won't be quiet. I mean, I've been trying to get you to shut up. It's hard to shut me up. Jeez, Louise. (laughs) I'm sorry, folks, but he just won't won't shut up. (laughs) So you talk about being there. That doesn't mean that you're engaged. Explain that to me. Well, being there does mean you're engaged. Okay. Yes. Being there means knowing why you're there. It's understanding the vision and how to get to that. You know, the vision's a goal. How do I get there? What do I have to do? What's my mission to get there? What values? What what uh, guidelines am I going to use to make decisions? That's that's being there. That's that engagement. You need that sense of purpose, that sense of direction. And that's why I always say out of the four parts of the fish philosophy, if you start with that one and attitude, everything else falls in place. If you wake up in the morning, look in that mirror and say, I'm going to be magnificent, and I know exactly where I'm going today, and I know the direction, I know what I want to accomplish, I think you got a better shot at success than at any other time getting up and saying, oh, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be. No, what are you going to do to get there? Do you know where there is? How many people don't know where there is? Alice in Wonderland, she comes to the fork in the road, and she asks the Cheshire cat, which direction, which road should I take? And he goes, where are you going? She goes, I don't know. And he goes, then it doesn't matter which road you choose. And that's and a lot of people are like that. Make that choice. Make that determination. What I love about the, the TV show Shark Tank, you get to see American ingenuity and innovation right on uh, in front of you, which is phenomenal in itself. But the determination, the drive, the creativity that these people have, that's being present. That's a great example of being present. Some of them shouldn't be. But yes, well, yeah, some of those ideas, yeah. yeah. I've always said that you can't stop and ask for directions if you don't know where you're going. Exactly. It's, it's the same thing with the Cheshire Cat and Alice. Yes, understand where you're going. Have some idea. And the other thing I always thought about life and success and business, it's not a race. No one's going to say, oh, he only did it when he was 30 he should have done it when he was 29, or he did it when he was 35. Maybe he should have done it when he was 30. So that, I, I think, is important. Uh, it's not a race. It's a journey, and there's going to be ups and downs. You know, it's like with uh, companies. When I go into companies and I'm speaking, and they talk about success, and they say, wow, we had a good quarter. I go, whoopee. I said, you could cook the books and have a good quarter. I said, did you have a good decade? And they look at you, no, a decade. Yes, you're in business, right? And and think about what that means, I had a good decade. Well, when you have a good decade, you're going to have ups and downs, but you're thinking decade, and you know you're going to have some speed bumps, road bumps, whatever. But if you're only thinking quarters, well, you're done. 
you have a bad quarter and you're like, oh my God, it, it's over. And that's how I think it's very important to have those long-term visions. I'm sure you do. You, you, you said it. You had a, a vision to get a Bentley one day. Yeah, I did. And you just gave me something. Thank you very much. It's when you said the word decade, I actually thought about that for myself and asked myself, because I talk to myself a lot. I don't know about anybody else. I talk to myself. We have multiple personalities, different dialects, all kinds of things. And I asked myself, have I ever set or looked back at, so I've ever set a decade goal, and I have I ever looked back at my last decade? Wow, what a, I'm, I'm absolutely going to ponder that thought today, because it could be overwhelming, overwhelmingly good or overwhelmingly bad, and how do I make it overwhelmingly great? Yeah, and... and- and if you do your life that way, because otherwise these short-term disappointments or, or hiccups or speed bumps, whatever you want to call them, will drive you crazy. It's like when each of my kids graduated school, I said, great, think about the next decade. You just graduated. You're going to get a job in your chosen field. You're going to learn. You're going to understand. You're going to grow. You're going to make a contribution. You're going to get a promotion. And I said, what a great decade. I said the same thing to them when they turned 21. Wow. You know, you went through high school. You got into college. You're doing well. What about the next decade? Look what's going to happen in the next decade. Graduate college. Get your job. May get married. This is a great thing. You just want those grandkids. You You just want those grandkids. That's what you're doing. Well, yeah, yeah, it would be kind of nice, but uh, we have a couple of dogs, and they kind of take the place right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a couple dogs, too. I have a slow licker. That's because he's old. He's like me. So he, he used to be a really fast licker, so you could actually, you couldn't catch his tongue coming out and going back in, but now you can see it. It's like he sends it and says, I'm going to lick you in a second, and it'll be there. <laughs> that's a funny way of looking at it, because we have a fast licker. A Boston Terrier is a fast licker. <laughs> oh, my, 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 um, Wiener dog is like so old, but he still likes to lick and he's, he still thinks he's good at it and he's not. And, <laughs> but that's okay. And thank goodness he can't understand English because I talk about him all the time. Well, think about, you know, bring, bring up dogs. Okay. You live in a house, got to let the dogs out to do their business. They go in the yard or a dog run, whatever you take, take them to the park, take them for a walk. Every time you grab that leash, every time you say, come on, we're going to go for a walk, those dogs are as happy as they can be. Their tails are wagging. Their tongues are moving in and out like your suit used to be fast liquor. They can't wait to go outside to do the same thing they've been doing all their lives. What happened to us? How come we don't think that way? I got to go to work today. I got to do this. You know, sometimes maybe we certain things, habits we don't want to take from a dog, but a lot of them we should. And that, that, that view on life, that excitement that they have for the same thing they've been doing, I think we got to start doing more of. Grab that zest for life and not be burdened by the sludge of negativity. I uh, often thought that if we wanted to be healthy, we'd just follow a nine-year-old around and do what they do. But I guess the same would hold true if we want to be happy, follow a nine-year-old around and do what they do. Because a nine-year-old, to me, is just, you know, when I was nine, I was playing in the dirt, I was running, I was 
jumping. I, there, no worry in the world. And I didn't need anything. I could create a toy out of a stick and I had everything I wanted. I didn't know there was anything else. I was completely in, in touch with myself. And, um, boy, that didn't sound right. But <laughs> I, I got your gist, but think about people like you, self-motivators, people with direction, vision, working towards success, successful, becoming more successful. Aren't we nine-year-olds in yeah. adult bodies? Yeah. yeah I, I hope so. Some days I remind myself I'm, I'm not being a nine-year-old. Some moments I'll, I'll wake up Mr. Grouchy. And um, yeah. un- unfortunately, we at least I'm going to say I fall into that trap. And, you know, I think that is, is a great tie into a question I have for you. So I hear this a lot and I think I hear it too much. I want to say not too much, but I, I, I do hear it too much. People use the words when they describe themselves. I'm a loser. How do you get over that thought process? Like, so you failed, like whatever fail means for you. As a person, you failed, you didn't accomplish, or you, you know, you, you tried something, it didn't work. How do you get over the thought process of I'm a failure, therefore I can't start again? I don't know if we could ever convince anyone otherwise. Really, if you, you have that kind of fatalist mentality, it's very hard to say, oh, no, you're not. Then we become maybe insincere and apathetic uh, when we say those things. And, and the other danger, I think, when someone is constantly saying, I'm a failure, it's, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, just like attitude magnificent versus ordinary. And when we try, think about when someone said that to you and, and you go into that coaching mode, let me help you. Let me, let me, let, why do you think that? I, I, I'm going to guess after 15 minutes you're depressed. Yeah, it, it's it's very hard to um, sometimes communicate with someone who doubts themselves. Yeah, be the master of your own emotions. I, I think that's a very important lesson. If someone asks for help, maybe you can give them some kind of direction or guideline. But other than that, I mean, when they keep on having that fatalist, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. I mean, the only thing at some point you could say is, well... Yes, you are, because that's all you you know talk about. Uh, what are you doing to change it? Right. And then when they say, well, uh, here's I want to change, this is what I'm going to do, then that's the time to kind of step in and say, okay, now I could help you. Right. right. I had this conversation yesterday with, with someone who asked for help but wouldn't receive the help. It, it was a crazy conversation. It no, my- sounds like a wife. <laughs> I have a wonderful wife, and she always listens to my podcast. Uh, Conchita, I love you a lot. Thank you for for enlightening my life. And um, I'm not just saying that. Anyway, (laughs) well, I think she's an important person to me. She's, you know, everybody says, you know, my wife completes me and all that kind of stuff. She doesn't. But because I think that's for me and my spirituality. But she gives me so much that um, I feel absolutely blessed. Oh, we're a much better family because uh, we're together than separate. No, no, my wife doesn't complete me. I don't complete her, but together we're much stronger. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I think when you rely on somebody for that completeness, you can never obtain it. 
Uh, yeah, really. People listening to his podcast should, should definitely grab onto that one. I guess that's why we get those pieces of mail from the AARP, because we're just wise now, right? <laughs> yeah. That's that's really just wisdom mail. They found me. They, 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 you know, my forwarded address that expired. They, they, they still found me. It's the realtor. They did the, the realtor does that to you. They, they, <laughs> they knew your new address. They called AARP. They sold the address for like you know a penny. This has been fun. It's been it's been real fun. I just was going to say, uh, yeah. Then then they contact all the lenders who say, I could save you money on your mortgage. You mean the one I got a month ago? Yeah. Being in the you know, I have a marketing business, which is pretty good size. I'm amazed at the amount of information that we can obtain about somebody. And being on that side of the fence, I almost think it's, it's a privacy issue. But man, I mean, some of the things I can, I can find out about a person, I wouldn't want people having that luxury or ability. However, we can, we can. So. Yeah, I, I understand that too. With the internet, the computers, and digital storage of information, I I have to look at that as a good thing. I think we have to embrace technology as what it can do for us, and do everything in our power to keep it from being a crutch or an excuse. No crutches, no excuses over on this side of the phone. Absolutely, <laughs> I don't believe in them. Again, this has been fun. I try to ask this question and I always feel silly asking it because I, I, I need a better way to ask it, but I don't have a better way. So I always ask, what didn't I ask that somebody else does or did or most people do that I should have asked about you and what you bring to us? Well, what I enjoyed about this is it was very conversational and it didn't get into well, tell me about your books and the information in your books and and what do you share with people in your speeches? We got all that, but we got all that without a marketing bent, without a here here's the information. I want you to go buy my book to get more of it. I think we were able to share everything that I would want to share in this type of environment without making it sound like uh, a webinar, a, an advertisement for me and my books or something. I do want everyone to go buy one, obviously. Or two, because or could, two. You know, if it's good for them, it's good for their friend. Exactly. And, but I think you did a great job in drawing out information from me and and from you too. We we did, we shared this, uh, you know, the information with people from both perspectives that could actually help them without sounding like a commercial message. So, from that perspective, I applaud you. The only thing you didn't ask for is my, uh, I guess, my website. What's your website? HarryTheFishGuy.com. Harry the Fish Guy, and all those words are spelt normally. Normally and together, yes. No, no hyphens, no dashes, no Nothing. whatever they call them nowadays. Yes. HarryTheFishGuy.com. <laughs> Again, thank you so much. And, and, and I, you got to promise me one thing, Michael. Absolutely. If I can. If I am in B- Bakersfield. Oh, gosh. I want to ride in the Bentley. Well, you don't really ride in a Bentley. You glide in a Bentley. That's true. Or, or you could say when you drive a Bentley, the world drives with you. When you rolls, you rolls alone. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a beautiful car. 
Is it, it a Mulsani it, or a, a, a Continental? It's a Continental. B12, it's a W12. I don't know why they call them W12s. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this. I went down to buy my Bentley to look at it the first time. I was in flip-flops, pair of shorts, and a polo shirt. I, sh- I certainly didn't look like I should be at a Bentley dealership. And Bentley, whoever trained my salesperson, whoever trained him, his mom, his dad, his sales leaders, did a magnificent job because he didn't see me. He saw someone who wanted to buy a Bentley. He didn't profile you. No, not at all. Uh, I did. I profiled myself. I actually got out of my car in my flip-flops and going, I'm, I'm actually in my flip-flops going in to go get this car. That's crazy. And you did it the right way because if they profiled you and, and shined you on, then it wasn't the dealership for you. Uh, just like in the movie Pretty Women where she walks into that boutique and wants to buy some stuff and they looked at her and said, we're not for you. you got to leave now. Yes. Worst feeling in the world, isn't it? it? It absolutely is. And it's the best feeling in the world when someone respects you. For who you are. Yeah. Not how you S- dress or your, your beneath persona. beneath the flip-flops and shorts. I had fun. You have a, a wonderful day, a week, a year, a decade, because that's my new word. We'll talk soon. I look forward to it. Take care, Michael. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, if that wasn't a bucket load of fun... I don't know if we talked about anything. I don't know if we said anything. I don't know if we discussed anything, but I had a blast. I think I just met my new BFF. And so that, I, I, I'm blessed just like, I'm in, I'm in love with Harry Paul now. I just can't, I can't stand myself. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. I did. I did. I, I gonna try to have him on again. He had so much enthusiasm and stuff to say and interesting. And so Harry, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Michael Quarles Real Estate Show. Get more info and stay in touch at michaelquarles.com.